Hello, and welcome to episode 15 of Not Reserving Judgment, a podcast about the latest intrigues, triumphs, and outrages in Canadian constitutional law. I'm Josh DeHaas, counsel with the Canadian Constitution Foundation. I'm Joanna Barron, executive director of the CCF. And I'm Christine Van Gein, the CCF's litigation director. In today's episode, we'll discuss whether Canada is obliged to repatriate four men stuck in Kurdish jails in Syria, where they've been accused of fighting for ISIS. We'll share our bad legal takes of the week, where we take a lighthearted look at some legal opinions that didn't quite land. And we'll tell you about the court decision that found Ottawa's single-use plastics ban unreasonable and unconstitutional. But first, I'm going to tell you about a series of proposals in Alberta aimed at making sure that future governments don't repeat the mistakes that were made during the COVID emergency. So I'm talking about the Public Health Emergencies Governance Review Panel Final Report, also known as the Manning Report, uh, because it was spearheaded by Preston Manning. And this report is 115 pages single space. So you owe me for reading this thing, <laughs> especially you, Christine, because... I saw you posting pictures of yourself skiing while I was out like reading this eight page, eight point font. Um, but it was actually worth the read. Like it's, it feels like I'm finally hearing something sensible about how we should approach uh, future emergencies. And it's too bad this didn't happen back in 2020. And Manning and the panel conclude that major changes should be made to legislation. And there's so many interesting things in here that it was hard to decide what to talk about. But the first major recommendation, and this is an important one, is that it should be elected officials like the premier, cabinet, and the MLAs who decide what measures get taken, not the healthcare system bureaucrats. And this seems like a no-brainer, but in Alberta, it was actually the chief medical officer who was supposed to make a lot of these decisions, and a court even ruled that she violated the law because she let Jason Kenney and other elected officials decide major policy changes. So... You know, it, I think that's a good recommendation. On top of that, it says that there should be cost-benefit analysis done by the emergency management agencies. And it says that, um, and this recommendation has been sort of derided by the usual suspects, but I think it's really important. Elected officials should be open to considering alternative scientific narratives and acknowledging the scientific uncertainty. So, for example, instead of public health claiming, you know, that masks work, and if you question masks, you're a science denier, they should be forced to acknowledge that, yes, they want to impose masks because they think it might work, but the scientific reviews so far point to little evidence that mask mandates actually reduce infection rates or make all that much difference. Another set of recommendations is related to school closures. So they note that, you know, Sweden didn't close schools because it recognized early on that kids faced a low risk from COVID and they faced a high risk from being out of classrooms because they would face, you know, learning loss and social isolation. And in response to this, uh, the authors say that they should amend the Education Act to prohibit school closures under all but the most exceptional circumstances. So, for example, you could still close schools, but it would have to be in a case where there's a virus that does cause a huge risk to, to children. They also say schools should be deemed an essential service. And to me, that means if you're going to start, you know, shutting down things um, in, in society, you need to shut down the non-essential things like the NHL games or the Netflix TV shoots before you start shutting down schools like we did here in Ontario. 
And the panel also proposes a huge number of amendments to the Bill of Rights. And it's actually breathtaking, the number of amendments that they're proposing. And uh, I won't be able to go through them all. But the first one is that the Bill of Rights says medical interventions will not be imposed or mandated on kids. And this sounds a lot to me like, you know, no mandatory childhood vaccinations. And personally, I'm very much in favor of universal childhood vaccines for you know, diseases like measles, things like that. But at the end of the day, I do agree that it should be the parent's choice. They would also add a new fundamental right of personal autonomy and integrity, presumably to protect against vaccine mandates. And this is a little bit redundant to me because the law, as much as it's been ignored by some judges, is already clear that when you give a person no meaningful choice, but to take a medical treatment like a vaccine, you have infringed their Section 7 rights to autonomy and, and security of the person, but I guess having it in the Bill of Rights won't hurt, and that's especially because of another big proposal they're making here, which is for serious penalties for violating rights under the Alberta Bill of Rights. So they want the Bill of Rights to say, quote, that anyone whose rights at or freedoms as guaranteed by this Bill of Rights have been infringed or denied may apply to a court of competent jurisdiction to obtain a just and appropriate remedy such as a stay, an injunction, a declaration, damages, or punitive damages. And this would give, give the Bill of Rights some really big teeth and I think probably prevent a lot of rights infringements, but I'm also a little skeptical that governments would be willing to expose themselves to things like punitive damages. So we'll have to wait and see whether this one actually happens. Um, they would also amend the Bill of Rights to state that every Albertan is entitled to informed consent. And they would say that every Albertan has a right not to be coerced either directly or indirectly into submitting to medical, psychological or any other type of care or treatment except upon order of a court of law of competent jurisdiction on proof of immediate danger or serious injury or loss of life to another. And um, this is this is an interesting proposal. You know, so much of the vaccine mandates were done with sort of informed consent, but many people really were coerced and that's a problem from my perspective. But it's also a bit of a risky proposal when you think about the conversation over whether to force, you know, mentally ill or drug addicted people into treatment. So I'd be cautious on the wording there. I won't get too deeply into these other proposals, but they also would add explicit protections for academic freedom and for the rights of professionals to engage without censorship in their profession. And they would prohibit, this one's a little bit weird, um, discrimination on the basis of opinion disability or medical status or history. And I'm not sure how discrimination on the basis of opinion would be determined. So that one certainly raises some, some questions for me. And uh, they also recommend better protections for privacy and that a person not be deprived of the means of earning a living, um, which is presumably aimed at vaccine mandates. And they make all kinds of other proposals like changes to the Judicature Act um, including one that would prevent courts from striking applications on grounds of mootness where constitutional or quasi-constitutional issues are raised. They would bar courts from awarding costs against someone who alleges an unjustifiable or unreasonable violation of their rights and freedoms unless the AG can show that the case was frivolous, vexatious, or an abusive process. 
They'd also require courts to expedite adjudication of alleged infringements of rights caused by emergency measures required resolution within 120 days, which is very fast. And uh, it recommends changes to the Employment Standards Code and all kinds of rec recommendations related to improving health care, like eliminating the, quote, quasi-monopolistic features that exist in the healthcare system, which uh, to me is an interesting idea because uh, that could lead to a lot more capacity, not just during emergencies, but at all times. And uh, yeah, so there's just a ton of interesting proposal in here. I hope people talk a lot more about it. Um, was there anything in there, Joanna, that grabbed you about these proposals? Yeah, well, obviously a lot of this is very exciting um, and I'm optimistic about it. Um, I think that there is value to sort of articulating and separating out rights, um, especially if the rights have teeth, but maybe I've just become so skeptical Christine and I are on our Alberta leg of our book tour um, talking about how the courts failed us during the pandemic. And I tend to think that the actual laws and protections and formal protections have to be only part of the solution. And I just can easily imagine another public emergency, whether health-based or somewhere else, where there's some way to wiggle out of this, right? Like, because we have a charter with ostensibly very strong protections um, and very specific rights, all of which, many of which I should say, were violated during the pandemic. Like if forcing somebody into a quarantine hotel, if they have to go see their parent or preventing people from gathering with their family on Christmas Eve, if that doesn't engage our charter rights, it's hard to see what was. So all of which I'm saying is that there's a cultural um, there's a cultural piece as well. And just bringing in these new rights, you know, Preston Manning does not have a magic wand, I would say. I don't know. What do you what do you think, Christine? So I, I haven't read this report yet, uh, because as Josh said, I was busy skiing on my day off between uh, these book tour events in Alberta. Um, you know, I've seen some high level comments and listening to what you said here, Josh, you know, I, I think that there's some some opportunity in this report, but uh, some of it, I think, is is a little beyond what is reasonable and and doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Like the making it uh, prohibit creating a prohibition on discrimination on the basis of opinion. I'm obviously I'm, I'm against that. I actually think we should be allowed to discriminate again on the basis of opinion, and I I do it all the time. Like I I just don't think that that's reasonable, and I can see that going all kinds of ways that I wouldn't agree with. I also am concerned with this dismissing constitutional challenges for mootness. Um, you know, that that was a problem during the pandemic. I think there were a bunch of cases that were dismissed for mootness, but I don't think we should prohibit the possibility that there are cases that raise constitutional issues but are moot. Um, I think that allowing the courts to control their own process is important and mootness is one of the one of the uh, concessions we need to make in in allowing courts to control that process. There are cases that just shouldn't be heard because they're moot. Now, uh, our experience was that our cases are, are, were well argued and we actually were able to overcome the government's claims of mootness in our cases. So for us, it wasn't a problem in our cases because you know we, we really had exceptional lawyers representing us. Um, that's not a suggestion that the lawyers in the cases where mootness was a barrier. We're not, we're not good, but it, it was 
not a problem for us. And I do think mootness is an important tool that the courts need to have, even if it did frustrate some of the claims during the pandemic. I mean, I'm going to have to read the whole thing. Uh, I think that there's stuff in here that I'm going to love and there's going to be stuff in here I'm not going to love. So uh, stay tuned, I guess, and I'll, I'll give you more thoughts if I have more after reading it. So I'll move on now to my, my news update. Uh, it's a case called Bring Our Loved Ones Home. Uh, this is a, a case that was decided at the federal court, then the federal court of appeal. And the Supreme Court just recently decided not to hear the appeal. And, you know, this case is about Canadian men with Canadian citizenship who are detained in Syria and have been accused of having gone to Syria to fight for ISIS. Uh, it's called Bring Our Loved One Home. Uh, someone's loved ones, I guess, not loved by most of most of us. These men have Canadian citizenship and the most notorious of them is a man named Jack Letts, who has or maybe had dual British Canadian citizenship. And he allegedly traveled from England to Syria to fight for ISIS and produce their propaganda. Uh, that's the allegation. Now, remember, ISIS is pretty monstrous. Uh, they released beheading videos. They threw men accused of being gay off the roofs of buildings. They sold members of a minority religion called Yazidis as slaves. So these are, are real atrocities. Uh, so loved ones, maybe not so much, but I suppose their, their mothers maybe still love them. Uh, now in May of this year, the federal government won their appeal at the federal court of appeal, which said that there was no constitutional obligation to repatriate these uh, accused terrorists. And the Canadian Charter has Section 6, which guarantees the right to enter, remain in, and leave Canada. But the Court of Appeal found that this doesn't create a positive obligation for the government to go out and find Canadians abroad and bring them home. It's more like a negative obligation not to banish Canadians. So the court found that the government of Canada was not in any way complicit in these men's presence in Syria or the detention in these Kurdish prisons in the northeast of Syria, where, you know, the conditions I've I've read are, are quite terrible, uh, really bad conditions for these uh, men. But, you know, the Canadian government had repeatedly warned Canadians not to enter enter Syria due to the brutal civil war in that country. And Canada closed its embassy in Damascus in 2012 and warned citizens that it could not provide assistance in that country. Now, the Court of Appeal had a lot of, of interesting things to say about how we are to interpret the charter. So they found that there was, they dismissed this appeal and said that there is no charter right to return. Now, what they said was that there's a lot, a lot, there's a lot to be said in this case about how the charter is to be interpreted. And they wrote that the charter prevents uh, or protects against exile and banishment, but offers no encouragement for the idea that Section 6 of the charter includes a right to be returned. And the court wrote that there has been a shift in, in recent years to a doctrinally loose approach to interpreting the charter. And this allowed previous courts to fashion a much broader underlying 
to quote the Court of Appeal, feel spirit or vibe to widen the scope of the charter's provision. And they wrote that as a result, new unwritten constitutional rights, which are far removed from the Constitution's actual text, were, quote, discovered. And they wrote that unsurprisingly, under this looser approach, the Supreme Court began to strike, strike down or circumvent some decades old binding precedents with uh, which led to doctrinally inconsistent results. And the Court of Appeal in Bolo, the Bring Our Loved Ones Home case, found that this loose approach has now been rejected. And they wrote, gone is the inspiration from some vague feel, spirit, or vibe, things that are in the eye of the beholder. It is, um, in its place, is a rigorous, objective, and disciplined judicial task guided by the words of the Constitution itself, viewed in light of their historic context and the larger objects of the Constitution, and where applicable, the meaning and purpose of the associated provisions in the Constitution. So the court found that the right to be returned smacks of that discredited, loose approach to the charter and dismissed the appeal. The Bring Our Loved Ones Home group appealed that decision to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court dismissed leave. And I obviously agree with the Federal Court of Appeals decision. And I also think it was the right thing for the Supreme Court to dismiss uh, leave and to not grant leave. It's the right outcome. I mean, we don't really want these people in our country, but it's also right, the right outcome on the law. The Federal Court of Appeals decision was also deeply critical of the Supreme Court's inconsistency and loosening of rigor of charter interpretation, citing uh, some a few specific ca cases. And if the Supreme Court had wanted to clarify things and say, no, uh, we do stand for lack of rigor and loose interpretation. <laughs> they could have granted leave, but they did not. And I think that settles things for what the correct approach is to charter interpretation. And that obviously is a good thing. Josh, any thoughts on the Bolo case? Yeah, I agree. The federal court decision was really good because it's 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 almost like the court is uh, moving back towards focusing on the text. And to me, the text of section six one is really clear. Like the words couldn't be more obvious. Like what they mean. It says every citizen of Canada has the right to enter, remain in, and leave Canada. It doesn't say every citizen has the right to have taxpayers send some you know, bureaucrats to Syria to rescue you from some Kurdish jail after you, you know, join ISIS. Like, and there uh, was I'm an really acknowledgement. There was an acknowledgement of the actual danger that it would put those bureaucrats in if they were required to go to Syria. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so, you know, I'm happy to see courts moving a little bit back towards the text. I, I think we've seen that in a few recent decisions, and it sort of it is a nice contrast to 10 years ago when we were seeing the Supreme Court read a lot of stuff into a lot of charter provisions that I didn't think was really there. Joanna, what do you think? Oh, I just want to re-up. This was just one of the best lines from a decision that I read in years from Stratus. Gone is inspiration from some vague feel, spirit, or vibe, things that are in the eye of the beholder. I feel like that's like a subtweet to uh, Rosalia Bella's old judicial <laughs> career. Um, you know, the, the days come to grant the right to strike constitutional benediction. Um, and we can sometimes be characterized 
as sort of um, like joyless for not embracing this, you know, judicial exuberance. But there's good reasons why it's a really bad idea, right? If judges can just go with their vibes and go with the, you know, their finger to the wind and when a right has constitutional benediction, then we ultimately live in a lawless and arbitrary country because laws need to be predictable. So I know that sometimes it's like a buzzkill, um, but I just want to reiterate the reason for that. Okay, so speaking of buzz kills, <laughs> uh, there's an exciting new decision. I'm going to try and um, skip over all of the jargon because there's a lot of discussion in this particular decision about uh, composition of plastics and toxic materials. Um, but look, here's here's the headline. I'm burying the lead. A federal court judge uh, last week ruled that a federal government decision to list all plastic items as toxic was unreasonable and unconstitutional um, and overturned uh, the decision in a judicial review. So the justice um, concluded that putting the whole category of plastic manufactured items was too broad to be considered in a blanket manner as toxic under federal law. She found that there's no reasonable apprehension that all of these items are harmful. And she also found that the federal government was acting outside of its authority. Um, and some of her analysis uh, goes to the principle of toxicity. She found that the basic principle of toxicity for chemicals is that all chemical substances have the potential to be toxic, which is true. However, for it actually to be toxic, um, it must be administered essentially at a high enough concentration. However, in the in uh, in the case of the government listing of all items, plastic items as toxic, she concluded that the reverse logic appears to be applied. All plastic uh, ingredients are identified as toxic because they are made of plastic and because all plastic is deemed to have the potential to become plastic pollution. And she found that the conclusion is devoid of consideration of the extreme variability in the types of plastic used to make items. Um, so I won't go on because it does get into a lot of uh, scientific jargon, um, but you get the point. So this case was brought by a group of companies, Dow Chemical, Imperial Oil, um, and they argued this point that there wasn't sufficient scientific evidence to justify the regulations. Um, now, understandably, the federal government is not pleased with this decision, and Stephen Gilbo, the environment minister, um, has already said that the government is considering an appeal. Uh, he put out a tweet that said, Canadians have been loud and clear that they want action to keep plastic out of our environment, and that's what we will keep fighting for. And of course, these regulations, uh, in terms of how they actually affect us, prohibited the sale of plastic bags, cutlery, uh, foodware, stir sticks, straws, um, and that was scheduled to take place after December 20th. And then the second issue that's also very much of interest to us, uh, kind of dovetailing with our uh, intervention in the impact assessment, no more pipelines bill case of the Supreme Court was the federalism issue. Uh, so regulating waste management, of course, generally falls under provincial responsibility under Section 92 of the Constitution. Um, the government, the federal government, 
is only able to regulate substances for environmental protection if they're listed as toxic under the Canadian Environmental Protection Act. So that's why this whole fight about was about whether all plastic ingredients could be considered um, toxic. Um, and uh, pardon me, <laughs> as I'm going through my notes, I'm realizing uh, the federal government has indicated that they're going to appeal the, the ruling. Um, and Alberta has also issued notice that they will intervene in such a hearing. So any response on uh, plastics, toxicity, the impact of this decision, federalism, Josh? I have so many thoughts. Um, so I hated this plastic bag ban with a passion. I was, I, I think I tweeted that I'm like a one issue voter and anyone who vows to get rid of this, <laughs> I will support because it just, it strikes me as so just like virtue signaling, right? Like the, the, the pl plastic bags are bad for the environment, but so are the reusable ones that you buy. Like they're all imported from China, which has terrible environmental standards and they're so thick that they you know they're going to last in a landfill much longer than a plastic bag you have to buy all those you know other plastic bags to line your bins now when you could have just reused the ones from the grocery store and I remember when this first happened I was like so angry that I like I I I, I decided okay I'm just going to use this like plastic container at no frills to carry stuff to my car and uh the the uh, cashier was like, "Sir, you can't do that. If you do that, I'm going to call security." And I'm like, "I'm just wanting like carry it 50 Wait, feet to seriously, my car." Seriously, what? What? You had like a bucket or something? No, like those plastic bins that, that you carry around the store. To yeah, Josh, I tried the exact in. same thing. And she, oh. so this this cashier like chewed me out and called security. And I was like, maybe you should send security after the people that are like stealing in the store because that's now that's happening. Many many people. Every time I go to No Frills, I, I yeah. heard a staff like a a shop person in No Frills joking in the aisles last time I was there, being like, "LOL, everyone in this store steals. Like the staff themselves steal." That was the implication. Right. Right. <laughs> At, so when I was there the last time, they told me, or they were telling some other guy, like, he's like, do you guys sell Parmesan? And the employee was like, yeah, we do, but we keep it in the back because otherwise people steal it. So you have to now get an employee to go get the Parmesan in the back. Anyway, so I'm I'm happy with this ruling just for, the, for that reason alone. But I also think it's a good ruling just because if you look at the word toxic, like that has a very clear textual meaning and it's obvious that all plastic is not going to meet that definition of toxic so I think it's the right decision from that perspective too Christine what do you think I'm happy whenever there's a decision about federalism and division of powers I think it's an underrated tool in the public mind for ensuring greater protection against government overreach and keeping the government the federal or provincial levels into their own realms of jurisdiction and they're both constantly trying to intrude into one another so any decision that reigns that in I think is a good one okay we're going to go to break and then when we come back and give my freedom update hi I'm Russell from the CCF in case you haven't already make sure to subscribe to our email newsletter the freedom update to get updates from me every week about our ongoing work and the legal stories in Canada that keep us interested it's one of the best ways to stay up to date Subscribe at the ccf.ca slash freedom update. So my freedom update this week is pretty timely because it's about Edmonton and Joanna and I are actually in Edmonton right now. 
for our book launch of Pandemic Panic, which is available on Amazon if you're interested in, in reading it. So a few weeks ago, we noticed some journalists on Twitter who were posting about what they said was a new policy by Edmonton Transit. And this new policy required media to notify the city of Edmonton prior to reporting, filming, or conducting business on Edmonton Transit property, including transit centers, LRT stations, stops along the Valley Line Southeast, and inside all buses and trains, and to contact Edmonton Transit Communications to gain access to the property. The LRT position was that this policy is to ensure safe and effective service to riders. But I think that this policy is an attempt to chill journalists from reporting on important matters that Edmonton Transit likely prefers media not cover, like rampant open drug use in the LRT stations and potential problems with the much delayed Valley Line Southeast. Even if ensuring safe and effective service to riders is a true purpose of this policy, the policy still doesn't comply with the Constitution and the guarantees for free press, and it needs to be rescinded. So I have seen footage of the drug use on Edmonton Underground and the LRT, and it's pretty disturbing. Now, I take transit in Toronto all the time, and seeing rampant drug use on the subway is not something I am accustomed to. I will see people on the TTC who maybe seem unwell, mentally unwell, or are homeless, but the footage I've seen of the LRT in Edmonton is just another level. It's people openly smoking crack or meth in front of other transit users on the LRT or in stations. And when I walk by these stations in Edmonton, since I've, I've been here for a day now, you know, I see people that are clearly on drugs, sometimes groups of them. And to be honest, I find it intimidating. I would not feel comfortable going into one of the underground stations here. And this is not because I have some aversion to public transit. I take public transit in Toronto all the time. It's that these stations and the underground ones in particular, they do not seem safe. And I think that reporting on the safety of these stations is a matter of public interest. And there are good reasons to report on that. And requiring notice or permission to engage in news reporting is an unjustifiable limitation on the right to freedom of expression and the right to freedom of the press protected by Section 2B of the Charter. Now, Josh, you wrote to the city of Edmonton and to Edmonton Transit and said that they needed to rescind this policy or we would bring a charter challenge. Can you tell us how they responded? Yeah, they responded the kind of the way that I, I expected them to, which is to say, oh, no, no, this was just a misunderstanding. We don't really have this charter violating policy. And uh, it was just some employee that uh, made a mistake and wrote this policy that very clearly is a policy and very clearly tries to threaten journalists that they need yeah, I mean, permission. The journalists have, have repeatedly said that they are removed from transit if they're taking videos right the national post ran a story about our letter to edmonton and they talked or it was it national post or was edmonton it Ed, journal Ed, edmonton journal and they spoke to other journalists i mean they're a newspaper they and they confirmed that this has been a long-standing policy uh at at, at Ed, in edmonton so this response from the city to say oh no it's just a misunderstanding it's sort of disingenuous isn't it 
Yeah, I think so. It's the type of spin you would kind of expect. And it does seem now that they've, you know, made their statement in the Edmonton Journal that they don't have this policy. And so that's good because um, that's, you know, hopefully most journalists will uh, read that and know that they have um, a right to go and film on the public areas of, of the transit system. And I think this was really about you know, sort of citizen journalists or people that are not affiliated with big media outlets that have been doing some reporting on this, on the LRT and in particular, the, the problem with drug use. And this applies to them too, right? So they also have a right to go on there and film and, uh, you know, interview people and do things that journalists do because there's no real distinction established in the law between sort of the big media stuff and the more Uh, grassroots citizen journalists. So I hope that they also get the message. But the good news is Edmonton is saying that they don't have this policy or that they don't plan to go ahead with the policy. So I consider that a win. Yeah, I think that that is a win if the result is that journalists can do that important reporting. I think perhaps they'll just have to print out a copy of this correspondence for any time their uh, Edmonton city staff try to eject them from these stations. Exactly, yeah. They conveniently forget that this was never their policy, which I'm sure it never was. It's all just a misunderstanding. Yeah, that's good. It's a nice small victory. Um, I'm going to move on to my bad legal take of the week. So uh, earlier this year, BC's NDP government responded to this growing public anger about how decriminalizing hard drugs has led to addicts shooting up in playgrounds and smoking crack in doorways by introducing this law called Bill 34 that restricts where drug addicts can, you know, whip out their meth pipes and their, their needles. And this law, which I think to most sane people would seem very reasonable, says you can't consume drugs within 15 meters of a play structure, a splash pad, inside a skate park, at the beach, in sports fields, or most controversially in public parks. And it also bans using within six meters of the workplace or um, bus stops. And the law says that police can order a person caught using drugs to leave the place, to put their needle away, or even to, you know, the police could even take their drugs as long as they're not government provided heroin or meth. And uh, most controversially actually arrest them. So. When discussing this bill, the BC Premier David Eby said that decriminalization was never about and cannot be about using hard drugs wherever you like. But as Colby Kosh explained in National Post, according to the activist groups who pushed for decriminalization, the whole point was to let people use hard drugs wherever they like. And these harm reduction activists say that if addicts can't you know, shoot up in places like parks because they're afraid of, of the police, uh, they might end up shooting up in a, an alleyway or an apartment, and uh, that's a place where they're more at risk because they're alone, at risk of overdose, that is. So where my bad legal take comes in is that this activist group called Harm Reduction Nurses says they're planning to sue the BC government for violating the charter right to smoke drugs or inject drugs wherever you like. And basically what they're saying here is that uh, people like drug addicts face a deprivation of their life, liberty, or security of the person that's not in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice, which includes things like arbitrariness or gross disproportionality, uh, if this law is enforced, essentially. So 
I do think it's possible they could establish that, you know, life or security of the person is implicated because there is this increased risk of death. But at the same time, the question is whether that's arbitrary or grossly disproportionate. And I think the answer is clearly no. You know, there's nothing arbitrary about banning injection drug use in playgrounds, for example, if the goal is to keep playgrounds free of hypodermic syringes. So there's like clearly a, a safety risk here. And I think the activists are probably emboldened by the insight case. Um, that's an example of, you know, the judicial overreach I was talking about earlier, where the court found that the Minister of Health had violated Section 7 rights of drug users because she didn't renew an exemption that had allowed safe injection sites uh, like insight to keep operating. But first of all, insight's a terrible decision, but even there you can make an argument for arbitrariness, which is that the Controlled, Dr Controlled Drugs and Substances Act claimed at, that its purpose was like the protection of public health and public safety. And the court said that, you know, if you deny the exemption, that's arbitrary because the evidence before them showed that Insight, when it had the exemption, had protected public health. That is the, the public health of, of drug users. And it had had a, a negl negligible impact on public safety. So, you know, even there, there was sort of an argument to be made. And uh, obviously, they're also going to make gross disproportionality arguments, but I think that too is likely to fail. And so that um, is my bad legal take of the week. Christine, what's yours? Okay, so mine relates to private prosecution. And we don't have all that much information right now about this proposed <laughs> private prosecution. There's going to be a press conference later on November 23rd to, I guess, lay out more information about what's going to happen. But basically, it's a group of uh, pro-Palestinian activists who have issued a media advise advisory announcing a notice of intention to prosecute Canadian government officials. And the prosecution, they say, will be for complicity in genocide, war crimes, and crimes against humanity committed by Israel in the Palestinian territory beginning October 7th. So, if, you know, in, in plain terms, this is a group of Canadians who support Palest Palestinians in Gaza and want to bring a private prosecution against Canadian government officials for their complicity in, in genocide, which they say is, a, is taking place uh, by Israel in Gaza. So this is weird. Uh, the, the criminal code does allow anyone who believes an offense has occurred to start a private prosecution, but this is, you know, a rarely used tool and is not often successful. The first step is to go to a justice of the peace at the at a courthouse and file out a form laying out the facts. And then if there's reasonable grounds to prosecute, I don't know who in this case they're saying, probably the prime minister and, and various cabinet ministers in Canada, um, they, justice of the peace will ask for information to be laid and a hearing will be scheduled. And you know, this is this is almost certainly not going to be successful because there are many hurdles involved with a private prosecution, including the Crown can uh, intervene in any point and end the process. So if the uh, 
plan here is to charge the prime minister with genocide, which is obviously not what is taking place in in Gaza. And if even if it were, the prime minister is not involved. The Canadian prime minister is not involved in that. If if someone were to try to charge the prime minister with this, the attorney general can just take over the case and stay it at their discretion. So, I mean, I'm looking forward to seeing what is going to happen with this plan that these lawyers in in Canada are laying out to to charge the prime minister with something or charge government officials with something. But my, I mean, I think that this whole thing is a bad legal take. This whole plan is not is is doomed to fail and is just a publicity stunt. But some of my my bad takes also go to journalists like Rachel Gilmore, who are entirely credulous about this high, whole stunt. And Rachel Gilmore tweeted, whoa, like this is some really groundbreaking uh, thing that we should all be paying attention to instead of ignoring. Uh, and I guarantee you, look, they're, 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 this has been attempted before against the prime minister. Uh, for example, uh, there have been attempts by a group in Quebec to bring a private criminal prosecution against Trudeau for uh, Roxham Road, for what they say was in the encouragement of illegal immigration into Canada. There was a private prosecution against Trudeau that was attempted by a uh, Ottawa, or I, no, sorry, I think he's a Mississauga-based man who had been involved in the Freedom Convoy, and he wanted to bring a private prosecution against Trudeau for uh, ethics breaches in the WE and SNC-Lavalin scandals. Now, in both of these cases, I can I can assure you, you know the outcome already, uh, and the prime minister is still the prime minister. He's not in jail because these private prosecutions have not been successful. But it just is so annoying to see so-called journalists like Rachel Gilmore treating a, you know, stunt private prosecution that they, you know, where they maybe agree with the cause as entirely credu credible and reasonable and something we should all be paying attention to when I'm certain if they had been paying more attention and see, seen these other attempts at private prosecutions against government officials in Canada, they would condemn it as some type of, um, you know, kooky scheme designed to overthrow the government by right-wing radicals. But no, no, when she agrees with the cause, it's, it's definitely worth doing, uh, you know, videos and, and interviews about. So my bad legal take goes to both these lawyers who are just trying to get attention and to Rachel Gilmore, who just perpetually has bad takes about everything. And is so also Anna, always just trying to get attention. <laughs> yes. So maybe they're, they're, they're a match made in heaven, right? These lawyers who are just about stunts and Rachel Gilmore, who's just about attention. Joanna, your bad legal take this week. Yeah, so nice rant. So my bad legal take goes to the Canadian Human Rights Commission, um, which recently re released a report concluding that Christmas um, and the observance of Christmas in terms of a statutory holiday is discriminatory. Um, so in the report, they say that observance of uh, Christmas is an obvious example of religious bias rooted in colonialism. Um, and the report says this history manifests itself in present-day systemic religious discrimination. An obvious example is statutory holidays in Canada. 
Uh, these holidays, including Christmas and Easter, are the only Canadian statutory holidays linked to religious holy days. Um, and as a result, non-religious, non-Christians may need to request special accommodation to observe their, ho their ho holy days. Uh, the discussion paper says uh, that we need to understand religious intolerance uh, in order to uh, end it. We need to understand how it persists and what kind of structures or practices and how it affects people's lives. Uh, it concludes uh, with the statement, no one is free until we are all free. Many societies, including our own, have been constructed in a way that places value on certain traits or identities to the exclusion of others. For example, white, male, Christian, English-speaking, thin or fit, uh, not having a dis disability, heterosexual, and gender-conforming. Because of this, many people are facing various forms of discrimination. Okay, so discrimination 101. Um, so first of all, a statutory holiday based on a religious uh, religious holiday, um, based on history and based on dominant culture, does not is not enough to make it discriminatory. Of course, we all have the right to not be discriminated against based on our religious beliefs and practices. So I, as a Jewish person, cannot be discriminated against because I observe Yom Kippur and Hanukkah instead of Christmas or Easter. But I, it would be discriminated against if either the state or the employer um, prevented uh, me from observing those holidays. And often in practice, by the way, it means that I get more days off because Christmas and and Easter are already holidays and I get to take additional holidays, um, which is cool. Um, but this is not sort of an undue burden. If there were examples that it was an undue burden, that uh, you had to jump through a bunch of hoops um, in order to observe your own religious tradition and faith, that's a different question about merely pointing to the existence of a religious basis for a statutory holiday like Christmas is not enough to call it discriminatory. Now, it's also important to mention that in Canada, although we have the right to religious liberty, we don't have what in the U.S. is called the Establishment Clause. So in the U.S., the government is uh, prevented from making any law respecting an establishment of religion. Of course, this doesn't mean that Christmas is not a statutory holiday um, in various parts of the U.S., probably I would say the whole U.S., um, but in Canada, we don't have that. That's why we have things like uh, public Catholic separate school boards. Um, but again, that doesn't mean that our state is discriminatory and rooted in settler colonialism, which seems to be um, maybe the phrase of the year. And then second, just to point out that it's probably would be impossible to entirely separate our culture and our public life um, from broadly what I would call Judeo-Christian norms. Um, many people have argued that the notion of individual rights and like subjectivity, meaning like individuals having perspectives, um, is something that was kind of that comes about in Christianity in terms of individual confession of faith. Um, but I won't get into that. But at very least, in a more prosaic sense, like the Gregorian calendar is based on broadly a Christian context. So I just don't think that you can scrub clean everything in public life um, from history and culture and religion. And that's not enough to make it uh, discriminatory. So in Canada, we're required to embrace pluralism, which is people have the right to have different norms and different faiths and they can coexist. Um, that is what's required by the charter, um, not strict neutrality. 
And then a final comment, we know, um, especially over the last six weeks or so, we've seen a lot of discrimination, a lot of intolerance, a lot of hate that is bubbling up in our society. And I just think going after Christmas as a statutory holiday um, is hiding the ball and not likely to be helpful to any of us. Josh, why don't you close us out? As usual, we hope you'll rate us, review us, and subscribe. And I really do mean go rate us and review us. And if you don't, I will start a private prosecution against you. And uh, <laughs> just a reminder, you can support our work by subscribing to the CCF's YouTube channel, by following us on Twitter, or by visiting our website, ccf.ca, where you can sign up for our Freedom Update newsletter from our colleague Russ. And the Canadian Constitution Foundation is a nonpartisan legal charity funded by donations. So please click that donate button on our website if you can. And uh, especially this time of year because Giving Tuesday is coming up, right? This a uh, few days from now. And thanks to some generous donors, we'll be uh, matching whatever is donated on Giving Tuesday. So now is a great time to, to donate if you can. Thanks for listening.